This episode of Super Soul is supported by the new Hulu original series, The 1619 Project, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and Academy Award-winning director Roger Ross Williams. This six-part documentary series is based on the groundbreaking New York Times essays, podcast, and award-winning book. The series examines the legacy of slavery in America and explores how it has shaped nearly all aspects of our society today, from policing to music to capitalism and our democracy. Watch The 1619 Project. New episodes premiere Thursday starting January 26th, streaming only on Hulu. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Well, Nicole Hannah-Jones, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, and I'm so delighted that you have taken the time to talk to me about 1619, which I know that by now, it's been on the bestsellers list for so long, and you've been around the country, you've been around in different parts of the world. I'm thinking, this woman is talked out. <laughs> uh, I'm never too talked out to, to talk with you, and I'm honored to be on here and discussing this work with you. Uh, this is, as I say, I believed from the first Sunday that this issue came out in the New York Times Magazine, and I read it and saw your byline and understood that you were behind the making of it. I believed in that moment that this was a supreme moment of destiny for you, that this thing had been, you know, I know that a thing like this does not show up in a person's life without a lot of soul work, a lot of labor, a lot of challenge, a lot of struggle to get here. So can you tell us how working at the New York Times and making the decision that you wanted this to be at the forefront of something that the magazine would launch out into the world, how that how that came to be? Oh, God, that's, <laughs> you know, there's the short origin story and the long origin story. And mm -hmm. in some ways, I feel like I've been working towards the 1619 Project uh, since I was 15 years old. That's when I first came across the date 1619. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Iowa in a very white state, but in a small town that there were still enough black folks to segregate us. So I grew up on the black side of town. I was bused to white schools and my high school offered a one semester black studies elective. And that class changed my life. I mean, I say that without hyperbole. It really changed my life because like all black kids, like all people, I, I had always sought to see myself in the American story. And the fact that we were barely there, I believed was because we must not have done much worthy of, of teaching us about. And I take this one semester class and all of a sudden, this entire world of knowledge is opened up to me. And um, I would ask Mr. Dial, Mr. Ray Dial to give me books to read on my own. And he put before the Mayflower in My Hands by Lerone Bennett. And that's when I came across the date 1619. And uh, people who know me know I've been obsessed with that date since then, that that date stood both for a legacy and a lineage that Black people had been here even before the Mayflower in 1620. 
And yet every child learns about the Mayflower, but the white lion in 1619 had been completely erased from our national story. And so it stood both for a lineage and the power of erasure and understanding who gets to shape our story. So I feel like so much of my journalism has been about trying to show the way this hidden history, hidden in plain sight history is shaping our society, whether we grapple with it or not. More of this episode after a short break. This episode of Super Soul is supported by the new Hulu original series, The 1619 Project, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and Academy Award-winning director Roger Ross Williams. This six-part documentary series is based on the groundbreaking New York Times essays, podcast, and award-winning book of the same name. The series sheds light on America's complex relationship with slavery by examining its legacy and explores how it has shaped nearly all aspects of society today, from policing to music to capitalism, and even the principles of our democracy itself. Watch The 1619 Project. New episodes premiere Thursday, starting January 26th, streaming only on Hulu. And since the project, you've won the Pulitzer Prize, named Time's Most Influential 100 People in the World, author and creator of this profound book of the 1619 Project and Origin Story, which became a number one bestseller immediately, an NAACP Image Award winner. When you were incubating this idea, did you feel somewhere inside yourself that the power of it to resonate in the world was what it has become? So, no. (laughs) I knew that it was a a powerful and important idea. And I knew, you know, I'm the creator of the project, but the project brings together dozens of voices, most of them descendants of American slavery. It It is truly a collectively told story. So I knew the power of what we were trying to do. But as you know, just because you produce something important and something that you feel is powerful, and that may be powerful, doesn't mean that the world responds to it in that way. So I had no idea, uh, especially with the initial project that published in the magazine in 2019, whether anyone would read it, whether it would outlast the very short American attention span, you know, after a day or two. Slavery is something that we've kind of willfully not wanted to deal with in our society. So here was an entire project, tens of thousands of words, excavating the legacy of slavery. I had no idea how people would respond. And in fact, the night before publication, I was sort of a complete mess. So describe that scene. Describe that scene, because the way the magazine works, you have all of the printed pages they're like up on a board, you're yes. looking at them. You're there with your friend, Wesley Norris, who's also with the Times, who'd written the music essay. And you all are looking at what's now going to be put together and going to go to print. Yeah, it was this moment where, you know, I'm like, I somehow got the New York Times to dedicate an entire issue of the magazine to excavating the legacy of slavery and allowing all of these Black folks to write this thing. I mean, every single page of the magazine and to see it all up on the wall and to know I had kind of one mandate, which is that we would be unflinching, that we weren't going to worry about making it palatable. We weren't going to worry about if people were turned off by it or upset by it. Like we were going to tell this story the way we felt we needed to tell it. And as we stood in that room, it was like, wow, we, we've done this thing. And Wesley and I 
we both got very emotional. We broke down and cried. And as you know, journalists, you know, this is not uh, yeah. something we're supposed to do. We don't, we, we really try to push down our emotion with our work, but this was the most important, but also painful work I've ever done um, to spend months and months and now years just immersed in the barbarism and brutality, pain of what Black Americans have experienced, but also the resilience and the ingenuity and the way that we've always resisted and, and, and asserted our humanity. It was just deeply emotional. But in the end, it, it ended up clearly being bigger than any of us uh, could have ever imagined. And, and I think it is because we were determined to be unflinching, no matter uh, how people would respond to it. I remember the Associated Press saying that the 1619 Project had become a touchstone for America's reckoning over slavery and the reverberations for Black Americans today. And it struck me because in the beginning of the book, there is a professor, Kwame Jeffries, who says, we all suffer for the poor history that we've been taught. I mean, and that line just struck me so because I remember all the years on the Oprah show having conversations about race and trying to get white people to see why we needed to talk about what had happened in this country with slavery. And, you know, and you know the lines. Why do we need to know that? Because I'm not responsible for what my ancestors did. And so I remember once explaining to this woman, like, okay, you had a grandmother, right? And your grandmother was able to get a job and right. And then your mother was able to get a job and your mother was able to do what she wanted to do in life. And because of that, now you were born in trying to explain it like through personal heritage. Right. But the real truth is people don't connect their own personal backgrounds to what their grandmothers and great grandmothers were able to do to what ours were not. That's right. And so that's why that line struck me so from Professor Jeffries when he says, we all suffer for the poor history we've been taught. Absolutely. I mean, what what I realize is there are some people who don't care about the facts. Yes. They don't care about what happened. And there's no amount of facts you can you can show them that will convince yeah. them that we are not this great and exceptional country of our mythology. But I don't actually think that's most people. You know, we've all been taught kind of the same uh, collective lies and obfuscations, and it's the silences that tell us as much as, as what we're taught. And because of that, you know, what I say is we've all been taught the history of a country that doesn't exist. And because we're taught this really false narrative, we can't grapple honestly and successfully with our defining tensions and inequalities. And so what this project really tries to do is fill in those gaps and say, actually, when you look at your society, this is what caused it. This is the truth of what built the society that we live in. What's always interesting, Oprah, is, of course, I hear all the time, well, my, my ancestors never owned slaves or my ancestors didn't get here until after 1865. What does that have mm. to do with me? But those people never say that about the Declaration of Independence, which your ancestors also didn't sign. And they don't say that about, you know, the Constitution or all of the great things about this country that their ancestors did not personally engage in. They right. accept that and they claim that part of their history. And what we're arguing is you have to claim it all. This is our collective past. And this collective past is shaping our collective presence. And you don't get to 
pick and choose which parts of that history you want to own and claim and which parts you want to distance yourself from. It's all of our history and it is shaping our society, whether we acknowledge it or not. And that is why we all suffer from the poor history. And we do. We do. America is exceptional in many ways um, that we would not want to admit. So uh, you, you start out on page 11 of this profound book saying the United States is a nation founded on both an ideal and a lie. Our Declaration of Independence, approved on July 4, 1776, proclaims that all men are created equal and endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights. But the white men who drafted those words did not believe them to be true for the hundreds of thousands of black people in their midst. A right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness did not include fully one-fifth of the new country. Yet despite being violently denied the freedom and justice promised to all, Black Americans believe fervently in the American creed. Are you most fascinated by the fact that even when those words were decreed and they did not apply to Black people, somehow we heard and believed that they did? Yes. I mean, that to me is the beauty of the American story, if we can tell the American story from the bottom and not from the top. Here we have a people who are literally only written in the Constitution as property. And none of these words were meant to include them. And yet they are they are actors in the revolutionary period. And they are reading and hearing these words of liberation and saying, actually, that's that's hypocrisy. And we're going to actually take those words literally. You, you, you know, what, what we don't think about is the Declaration of Independence is a succession document. This is the document where the colonists, the white colonists, are laying out all of the crimes that they believe the British have committed against them to say, this is why we need to break off from you and have our own freedom. That opening stanza that you just read is not what the document is. It wasn't a liberation document. It was a succession document. And yet Black people read that opening stanza and say, oh, you cannot abide slavery and have this as your opening declaration of this new nation, that these two things are in conflict. And we are going to take that stanza and hold it at face value, that the people who did not know freedom are the ones who valued it the most and said, we will take and fight to make these words true. And that really has been the role of Black people, as you know, generation after generation after generation is to try to make manifest these ideals of freedom where we know when those white colonists wrote them, they didn't believe they applied to women. They didn't believe they applied to indigenous people. They didn't even believe they applied to white men who didn't own land. But black people took a very expansive view and that's because they are on the bottom. So if anyone doesn't have rights, anyone above them, uh, that means they don't have rights. And that has been kind of the sacred role of Black Americans, so we rarely get the credit for it. Macy's Mother's Day gift guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana Devotion, Eau de Parfum, Coach floral printed leather Cassie crossbody bag and Le Creuset shallot Dutch oven. Shop at Macy's.com slash gift finder. It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, 
Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. You say uh, in, in the 1619 Project book that our myths have not served us well. We are the most unequal of the Western democracies. We incarcerate our citizens at the highest rates. We suffer the greatest income inequality. Americans' lifespans are shorter than those of the people in the nations we compare ourselves to. And the 1619 Project seeks to explain this present day reality and challenge these myths, not to tear down or further divide this country as some critics suggest, but so that we can truly become the country we already claim to be. Why do you think there has been such resistance? Has the level of vitriol attack and resistance to the 1619 Project and what you're trying to say about Black Americans' contribution to this country, has it surprised you? Absolutely. I knew there would be resistance and I knew there would be criticism and critique. And frankly, there should be. This was an ambitious project. We we were attempting to make an evocative argument. And obviously, the reason the project exists in the first place is we have not wanted to grapple with this with this past. And certainly uh, we don't want to acknowledge the way that past is shaping our present. But I couldn't have ever imagined the full weight of the power that has come down against this project. In speaking with other historians, no one can think of a a single text that has been banned by name in so many different laws. We've seen this whole anti-critical race theory propaganda campaign arise because of the project. I, I could not have imagined. You know, I've been a journalist for 20 years. And I've written about racial inequality my entire career, but nothing I've ever done 
has received this type of response. Yes, is it this? It, it is the sixteen nineteen project that started the whole critical because I'd never heard of critical race theory. Yes. So first, the laws were specifically against the sixteen nineteen project, and many of those laws didn't pass. There's laws pending in about two dozen states. Some of them have passed, some haven't. But then they just began this kind of larger campaign against what they called critical race theory. But really, of course, as you know, was teaching any types of histories or anti-racist texts that they didn't like. So it, it to me, it speaks to more than anything, the 1619 Project is a work of memory. It is a work that is challenging kind of our collective memory and the, the, the nationalistic stories that we've all been told. And what memory or history, as we call it, does is it either legitimizes power or delegitimizes power. It either justifies our current hierarchies or it exposes them. Let's speak more to this idea of memory, because one of the things you write, I think this came from Peter Wood, wrote in a 1999 paper on slavery and denial. He said, after all, as several eminent academics have recently reminded us, nations need to control national memory because nations keep their shape by shaping their citizens' understanding of the past. And so in reading 1619, you come to understand, I mean, even I, who thought I knew a lot about African-American history and grew up reciting Sojourner Truth and Fannie Lou Hamer, realized that you know, I really just heard about Crispus Attucks, and I knew that he was the first to fall in the Revolutionary War. And then, as far as I knew, there wasn't anybody else who was fighting or fell. You know, That's right. there was no other contribution. And so, the way the history has been shaped has been shaped in a way to cause a certain kind of understanding. And one of the things that you say in the 1619 Project is it's almost like worshiping those people who participated in the war uh, as demigods, you yes. know? Yes. I mean, think about, you know, this, these kind of mystical founders and, and we, we deify them. We basically don't treat them as political beings, right? As, as human beings. As who, real beings. As, right. right. Who are complicated, who have various motivations, some of them pure, many of them not. And so- Who are saying in one sentence, all men are created equal as they go home to their slaves. Right. And so what we've been taught is that what's important is they wrote these words and, and fought for freedom. And well- you know, yeah, they had slaves, but it was complicated, and we don't really want to talk too much about that. And and so we have this kind of idea of these, as I said, these demigods who bring this idea of, of a free nation into the world. And then we are told to ignore the fact that the majority of our founders enslaved human beings, that the man who wrote the Declaration was an enslaver, that the man who's the father of the Constitution was an enslaver, that the man who wrote the Bill of Rights was an enslaver, that the most powerful men in our society got their wealth and privilege from human bondage. And we've been taught to treat that as an asterisk because how does one hold these two things in our mind at the same time? That as Edmund Morgan said, the historian, in America, slavery and freedom were born at the same time. But we only want to talk about one of those stories. And so I always say that Black people are the most inconvenient people in the American mythology, right? Because how do you explain our presence without having to acknowledge this grave hypocrisy upon 
which we were built. And so we just get written out of the story. Even though we're one fifth of the population at the revolution, even though slavery is practiced in all 13 colonies, even though our most wealthy and privileged men in America are all slave owners, we're taught to think that Black people are inconsequential, that we're literally cattle, right? We're not even paying attention to the war. We're not engaging in the war. Um, and none of that is true. And, and our existence here has always been a point of tension. And Black Americans have always served as agents and actors in any conflict we've had because Black people are trying to get free. And whoever was promising that is who we would engage with. So I remember even the first time that I even contemplated the role of Black people in the revolutionary period was when I was researching this project. So here I am, an African-American studies major. I've studied Black history for more than 25 years, but I've always studied like the, the 1800s and the period around the Civil War. And I realized I've never even contemplated what were Black people doing at the period of the revolution and what role did we play? And that's when you realize how intentional our erasure is from that, because you just cannot further the myth of these freedom-seeking colonists if you acknowledge that part of the reason they wanted freedom was George Washington was saying, the British are gonna treat us like we treat our slaves, right? Like they know what they're doing. They're acknowledging all the time that they have to have this property in human beings, that this is where they got their wealth and they know it's wrong because they don't want to be treated the way that they're treating their enslaved people. And we have not wanted to grapple with that. Um, it is the known world, it is, it is the silence. It's not that they're saying we don't participate, they just erase us from the story. I think when I read the essay, what was so profound about it is that you and the team of essayists that you chose we're able to connect the dots to answer the question that so many people pose to you and that I've heard over the years. What's that got to do with me? Why do I need to know about that? That has nothing to do with now. And what you all have been able to do through the 1619 Project is allow us to see how it has affected everything. Yes. Even traffic. I mean, that was the thing that got me, even traffic. Can you talk about that essay? Yeah, so I always say at my at my pettiest, uh, which can be pretty petty, uh, the 1619 Project is answering that question every Black person gets, which is slavery was a long time ago. Why don't you get over it? So I wanted to create a project that showed how do you get over something that is as foundational to your society as anything can be foundational, right? Almost nothing in America is older than slavery. The English landed Jamestown in 1607, 12 years later, we've begun African slavery. Our legal, political, social, cultural, uh, artistic, medical systems are all built around slavery and the justification of slavery. So I wanted this project to be about America right now and to say, we're going to show you all of the surprising ways that slavery is still shaping the society that we live in today, that it isn't something that happened a long time ago, that our society was built on slavery and anti-Black racism, and our society is still being shaped by that. So we came up with a bunch of different areas that we hoped would be surprising uh, and then trace them back. And yes, including traffic in Atlanta, right? So when you're sitting in traffic in Atlanta and you're like, this whole highway system makes no sense if you want to move people quickly from one place to another, you understand that within the logic of racism, 
it makes sense. So this is an essay by Princeton historian Kevin Cruz, and it talks about when they were designing the freeway system in Atlanta, they didn't design a system to move people from one place to another as efficiently as possible. They designed a system to help segregate, right, to create the spatial barriers between white and black communities. So they ran freeways directly through often prosperous black communities, and they created them to create these physical barriers uh, to stop neighborhoods from integrating and from Black people from having easy access to white neighborhoods in Atlanta. And we also actually see this in many cities across the country where the highway systems were used uh, in explicitly racist ways to destroy middle-class Black neighborhoods uh, and to divide Black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods. Robert Moses in New York City making the tunnels only so high so that the buses couldn't go through so that Black and Hispanic people wouldn't be able to take the bus to get to, get to the parks on the other side. Absolutely. And you could see this, you know, in Atlanta where why we haven't seen the expansion of public transit. So the population of Atlanta grows and grows and grows, and yet public transit does not go out onto the white suburbs because there is a desire not to allow Black people to have easy access to these white uh, suburban rings. So when you when you begin to pull back the layers, I always argue that the, the project is like taking the red pill in the matrix, that suddenly you see the legacy of slavery is everywhere, that we can go around and see our world and have no idea what built it. But if you begin to read the 1619 Project and the texts that underlie it, you see that so much of the architecture of our society can actually be traced back to the legacy of slavery. Yeah. And I think it's an important book for people who want the answer to why are we where we are yes. today in this country, you know, particularly in terms of racial relations. Of all of the egregious acts against Black people that have occurred since slavery, including those 100 years of Jim Crow and violence and domestic terrorism, what is the thing that strikes you the most as the most devastating? Oh, God. Um, that's... <laughs> That's a hard question to answer because just so much is devastating. You know, Dorothy Roberts' essay on race, where, you know, so often when we talk about slavery, we talk about the violence against men, but the violence that Black women face was often a sexual violence. Mm -hmm. We outlaw importing Africans into America to be slaves in 1808. And yet by the 1860s, we have the largest population of enslaved people in the world. That happens through forced reproduction, where Black women enslaved women were forced through sexual assault and sexual violence and sexual coercion to reproduce slavery, literally through their wombs. That's some of the most, I think, traumatizing reading and reporting that I've done. And yet uh, here we are. So that resilience of Black women who were determined, even in those circumstances, to raise their, their children and raise other people's children and, and to survive is, is tragically beautiful. I think, though... Let me just tell people who Dorothy Roberts is. She's okay. a leading scholar of race, gender, and law. She writes an essay on how the regulation of Black women's bodies played a central role in the justification of slavery. It's yeah. on page 54 that she says, whether free or enslaved, Black women were portrayed as sexually uh, licentious, always consenting, and therefore unrapeable. Yes. And literally, legally, 
an enslaved woman could not be raped by law, that Black women had no right to bodily autonomy, and actually any way that uh, a Black woman could be impregnated, no matter by whom, um, was considered to be a good thing. So we actually had a legal system that said Black women were unrapeable. And so when you then look at our society today, where Black women are not believed uh, when they're sexually Mm -hmm. assaulted, where uh, their sexual assaults are not taken seriously. And so just quickly, to, to justify the fact that you're saying Black women who are enslaved cannot be raped because, you know, a, a cattle can't be raped. Because it's property. Because it's property. Right, exactly. And so an enslaved woman can't be raped. But you know that an enslaved woman is not a, a cattle and that she is not right. a horse. So then you have to justify it by saying Black women are just sexually promiscuous anyway. Black women actually don't ever say no to sex. And so they actually can't legally be raped, but they also just can't be raped because Black women want sex all the time. Well, we see those same stereotypes, of course, in how we view Black women today as promiscuous, as, uh, you know, even young girls who are yeah. who are adultified and treated as if they yeah. are full sexual beings. That is all a carryover from that legacy. And that essay is one of the, the I think, in, in a book full of hard essays, that's one of the hardest. You said that also one of your favorite essays and one that may surprise readers is a chapter titled Dispossession yes. by Harvard historian uh, Tia Miles. And she makes the connection between the African-American and Native American experience. What did she write that was most striking to you? So I always knew a big hole in the first iteration of this project in the magazine was that we didn't deal with settler colonialism, that we didn't really talk about indigenous slavery as well as indigenous people, and the fact that you can't expand slavery in the United States without the theft of indigenous lands. I, I struggled in that first uh, iteration to, to figure out what's the what is the right way to tell that story where it still fits in with the project, which is about African slavery. But luckily, Taya Miles, who is Afro-Indigenous herself, um, agreed to write this essay. And what I think it will be most surprising, though, to your average reader is to learn that uh, the five, quote unquote, civilized tribes of the Southeast engaged in chattel slavery, that as part of their so-called civilization process, they became slave owners of African people. So my dad's hometown is Greenwood, Mississippi in LaFleur County. The city and county are named after Greenwood LaFleur, who was a Choctaw chief. He owned about 400 enslaved people um, and enslaved people. Uh, so he was very wealthy native slave owner and enslaved people were marched on the Trail of Tears uh, and enslaved people were enslaved by the tribes until a year after the Civil War in 1866, when the federal government forced those tribes to finally end slavery. I think that will be pretty shocking uh, to a lot of Americans who have no uh, idea of this right. history. And I have read that one of the reasons the Black population in Tulsa was so wealthy was the only people who were ever forced to pay enslaved people reparations were some of the the slaveholding tribes in Oklahoma who had to give, when they ended slavery, they had to give land uh, to the people they had once enslaved. And that that's actually part of why the Black population in Tulsa was so prosperous, is they had actually gotten some reparations. So that's like, for the history nerd in me, that's one of those essays where I think people will just be completely shocked. I know, it's mind-blowing. 
I mean, literally mind blowing that I, I, I didn't know any of that. Didn't know it, hadn't heard of it. Really, it was like one of, not even an aha moment. It was like, I didn't even know this existed, existed kind of moment. And speaking of land, I mean, the being able to pass on land is the opportunity to actually create generational wealth. I think one of the most offensive things to me is the way, as a person now who owns lots of land, I prefer land to shoes. When (laughs) other people were buying shoes, I was buying up property. And it makes me tear up because my ability to have this right and the freedom to do this comes from a people who were not even allowed to have their own land. And then even after going to fight in the war and coming back after the GI Bill, not being able to allow to get the same kind of benefits and, you know, home ownership that other people who served in, in the military. Can you speak to that, the importance of land? And like when people say, well, you just need to pull yourself up That's by right. your bootstrap, you know, but bootstraps, it's hard when there are no boots available. Right. Or if you if you finally manage to scrape together your dollars to get some, they get violently taken from you. Right. Yes. Yes. So that's the thing. Like when you ask what what's the hardest part of the book, I think it is the way that the book helps you understand that again and again and again, black Americans have tried to do the things that we are told we have to do to be successful and were never just left alone. Right. So after slavery, what, what's come to be known as the 40 acres and a mule came about because black people meet with the union generals and say, just give us some land so we can be independent. We, we know how to make wealth from this land. We made wealth for all these white people for all these years. Give us this land so we can be free. And 40 acres and a mule wasn't even given. This land was loaned to enslaved people who were to work and then pay back for that land. And yet that land was taken. And then after that, Black people still somehow managed to scrape together and start all Black towns and to purchase land. And they just want to be independent. And yet systematically, again and again, you see prosperous Black towns uh, burned down. You see them flooded. You see in Tulsa, prosperous Black areas being bombed. Uh, You see, you know, the story in the book by Tremaine Lee about a Black man who had acquired businesses and became a local employer, was killed so they could take his land and his property. Uh, Khalil Muhammad in, in the podcast talks about sugar farmers in Louisiana yeah. who have their land I remember taken. that. And mm-hmm. so that to me is the most tragic story is that there's never been a moment where we were just allowed to be left alone and thrive, right? You, you could never make up for 250 years of stolen labor, of our inability to gain property, to make wills, to pass on anything. But even at 1865, we're still not allowed to simply do the same things that every other American could do. Um, And if we were acquired an education, if we acquired some land, it was just taken systematically. And, And I think that's what's so critical is all of these individual stories actually amount to a system. And then we wonder, well, why are Black people at the bottom of every indicator of well-being? Why is Black people's wealth, no matter their education, no matter if they're married or not, no matter if they go to college, no matter if they buy a home, that we have one-tenth the wealth of white Americans? And that's because 
the most tragic thing is we have never just simply been left alone to try to thrive like every other community. Right. And even when you were, you were redlined. Yes. 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 One of the things that I think is so important, you write about the American public having an outdated and vague sense of the past. And yet the 2019 Washington Post poll uh, found that despite their meager knowledge of slavery, two thirds of Americans believe that the legacy of slavery still affects our society today. They can see and feel the truth of this fact. They just haven't learned a history that helps them understand how and why. So I know that this is an effort to help people learn the how and the why. Have you felt that it has been received by enough people that it's actually making a difference? Absolutely. Um, You don't see um, this much power aligned against a project that uh, is insignificant, that that people don't care about, right? If, if, If only Black people cared about the project, you wouldn't see Republicans trying to ban it. The fact that I've been traveling all over the country and what I hear again and again from people, different races, different ages, rural, suburban, urban, is they say, I just never knew. I never knew any of this. And and I felt like there was more to the story than what I was getting, but I never knew. And once you know, I just think you support different policies. I mean, this really is what it's about. We become journalists because we understand that narrative drives policy. And if we, if most of us believe that, yeah, we did some bad things in the past, but we are fundamentally equal society. And so any uh, inequality that Black Americans experience is just their unwillingness to take advantage of the bounty of America, then we support very stingy, punitive, regressive policy that targets the pathology of individuals. But if you believe that a country, you know, that for 250 years believed that Black people could be bought and sold as property, that for 100 years felt that the violent exploitation of Black Americans was justified, that a society like that is likely the reason Black Americans collectively suffer, then you pass policies that address that. And so I know that this project is having an impact uh, by the enemies uh, that this project has drawn. Has it made you more of a fighter? Has it made you more fearless or fearful? Oh, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm an Aries. I'm not a fearful person. I mean, the beauty of coming from where I come from, which is I, I say all the time, I, I came from the dirt into the dirt. I know I can be returned, so I, I just don't have a lot of worry about that. But about studying our history and particularly, you know, the strong Black women who who spiritually guide me, people like Ida B. Wells, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, um, you know, go down the list is I didn't get into this work with a naive spirit that it was going to be all uh, accolades and rising high. I knew that if I was successful, this work would be attacked and I would be attacked. And uh, I'm just... I'm built for it. I know that this is my purpose. Um, I know this work matters. And when I go out into particularly black communities and they tell me I'm praying for you, that you don't, you have no idea how many people have your back, even if you don't, you don't know that we have your back, that they understand uh, the power of this work and what this work means to them. 
I, I feel motivated to do what I'm doing every day. And, and sometimes I can't believe that I actually um, get to do this for a living. What What is the most rewarding? I, I remember in the book you talk about going to speak, I think it was in Chicago, and students coming up to you. Yes. And then there was another time, I think you were speaking in New Orleans, and a little old lady comes up to you who's like 90 years old. Can you share those stories? Yes. So, you know, I'm, I'm a 46-year-old journalist who writes really long essays. And so I never had any expectation would, you know, younger people know who I am, would younger people care about the work. And, you know, I visited Chicago. Chicago was the first school district in the country to adopt the 1619 Project as its curriculum. And of course, I, I grew up four hours from Chicago. I spent a lot of time there. So it was really meaningful. And I went to the high school and these two black students who I quote in the book, right, they, they talked about how insignificant they had felt until they read the 1619 Project, and particularly my essay on democracy, which argues, you know, we have been the perfectors of this democracy. This is, we built the, the freedoms that we have. And the little boy said, it just makes me want to work harder because I know what my ancestors went through. And now I feel, I feel not only pride, but an obligation that I have to be successful. And then I was in New Orleans, and I mean, this 90-year-old woman came up tears in her eyes, and just embraced me and said, thank you. I, I always suspected there was more to the story, but I just, I didn't have the facts. I didn't know. And my back is straighter now. And I'm, I'm sitting here like, mm-hmm. you're 90 mm-hmm. year old. I can't even imagine the things that you have lived through as a 90 year old mm-hmm. black woman in the deep South. And yet you're thanking me. And all I did was, you know, write some words. And, and that's when, you know, the weight that we carry as Black people when we've been written out of the story, when we've been made to think that we we are insignificant, that we were not contributors to the country of our birth, that we carry a weight of feeling inferior. I mean, so much of what drove the 1619 Project is my sense as a child of feeling embarrassed that we came from slavery, of feeling insignificant, of feeling everyone else came from great people who did great things and we just waited for what white people were going to do, right? Like, Is that why you were embarrassed by your father's patriotism and his flying of the American flag? I was embarrassed. So by the, by the time I was embarrassed by my father's patriotism, I had been radicalized by Mr. Dial in that one semester of Black Studies. Because by then I knew, well, we had this whole history and I, and I understood, I was beginning to really grasp what this country had done to Black people. That your father had served in a military, that he is defending the country and then comes home and cannot be defended. Right. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, my my dad, this extremely intelligent man born in Jim Crow, Mississippi, who, you know, drove a bus. I started making more money than my dad uh, when I was doing work study at Notre Dame, you know, and, and seeing that a man who had so much pride in his country to me was treated so disrespectfully. I didn't understand why he would exhibit pride in that way. But as I talk about, it was in reporting for the 1619 Project and reading people who were literally born into slavery, who were saying, we're not gonna leave this country. Our ancestors' blood is in this soil. We fought for this country, built this country, and this is our land, that I came to understand my father was claiming his lineage. He was claiming his legacy. And while 
I'm not going to fly an American flag in my yard. It's not, it's not my way of showing patriotism, that he absolutely had a right to do that. And that was his way of asserting his lineage as a Black American and as a perfecter of democracy. And it, and it took me, you know, 30 years to understand my father. And I'm only sad that he didn't live um, for me to be able to have that conversation with him. I want to read what you write on page 476, because it, for me, encapsulates, I think, the essence of what you're trying to do with the 1619 Project. You say citizens inherit not just the glory of their nation, but its wrongs too. A truly great country does not ignore or excuse its sins. It confronts them and then works to make them right. If we are to be redeemed, we must do what is just. We must finally live up to the magnificent ideals upon which we were founded. Do you think that's going to happen anytime soon <laughs> with the state of our nation no. right now, Sister no. Nicole? <laughs> I, I do not. Um, I think we are in a once in a generation's fight uh, for the soul of our country. And I ended the book that way because I do want us to understand we have choice, that we don't have to be that country of our past. And the country we live in was created. And so we can create something new. And I want to leave us with a charge that we have agency, that it is up to us. But I also fear that we are not rising to the moment. And as Dr. King said, those who wish us ill seem to use time much more efficiently than those who wish us well. So these days, I've been out on you know 1619 doing book talks, and almost always now I'm just talking about democracy. That we're in the we're in the battle for our lives right now, and um, we have choices to make. And where right now do you think that we stand in that battle? Are we on the edge of the Are we on the edge of the battlefield? I mean, the fact that there have been, I mean, I don't know who is watching the hearings, the January 6th hearings. We don't know what impact that's having on people. You do know that candidates who still proclaim that the election was stolen and using all the conspiracy theories are being elected by supposedly reasonably minded people. So where do you think we are right now? And will we be okay? I try to never predict the future, and I don't like being wrong in public, so I don't try to okay. predict the future. But, but, but you can assess as a journalist who's got your finger on the pulse, and you're actually out there talking to people where we are. How bad is it? We are in a society that is starting to exhibit fascist and authoritarian tendencies. And what's the solution? <laughs> well, what I always like to say is I'm, I'm a journalist, and... The beauty of that is I just expose what's happening and it's up to other people to figure out. You don't have to have an answer. (laughs) Not my job. I will say it's not just voting. People have voted. And the majority has elected uh, who they wanted to the presidency, to the Senate, and to the House, and are not seeing the, the fruition that comes from that vote. And you can't simply keep telling people to vote and you will not protect their vote. Right. So that is not the only solution is what I'll say. I'm not sure what the solution is 
accept American people deciding uh, that they will not accept the erosion of democracy, which means we have to organize, we have to fight back, and we have to have a Congress uh, that we have given power to that is willing to play the same game that that is being played against them. So I, I can't I can't say exactly what all the solutions are. My job is to point out the problems and to try to ring the alarm. But uh, there are some very smart people who are working on these issues, and I, and I hope we'll start paying more attention. Do you feel the spirit and embrace of the ancestors with you with this project? I mean, the fact that you put it out into the world, people show up and they tell you, I see myself differently. I see our history different. I didn't know all the answers or I didn't have the facts as a woman said. Do you feel that there's something you had mentioned earlier that this obviously is bigger than you, but do you feel that there's something soulfully, spiritually happening with this that is more dynamic than just making the bestsellers list and selling books? I'm so grateful you asked that question. I'm not a spiritual person. Uh, I'm not a religious person. I'm, I'm agnostic. And I always just say, I, I don't believe in God, but I believe in the Zodiac. But I have felt an ancestral presence on this work. And and when I said this to my husband, he, he just looked at me because he's like, you don't talk like that. You don't mm-hmm. believe that. But I, I have. Uh, there have been moments, for instance, the, in the very last section of uh, the democracy essay, it begins with, they say our people were born on the water. And that writing doesn't even match the rest of the writing in the essay. It, it doesn't even mm-hmm. go. And I was having a particularly hard moment in trying to write the essay. I was completely overwhelmed. I was like, I'm going to be a failure. I just couldn't write. And that line just came to me. And I felt the ancestors gave that to me. I really did. I felt I have felt in ways that I can't explain because again, it's not it's not how my mind works and everyone knows I'm I'm just I'm not that type of person, but I have felt that um that I'm doing the work that is blessed by them that they look over me. You say in the end, I want to thank the ancestors and the more than 30 million descendants of American slavery. I never forget who this work is for and to whom I belong. That's right. I love that line. We must always hold our heads up high because we come from and we are a great people. Yes. Thank you, Nicole, for your unwavering courage, for your fearlessness and being a powerful force for positive change in this country. And your work, your intellect, your strength is gonna literally, I think, change the way people see our history. It already has done that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, it's just, it's a dream every time I, I get to talk to you. And I I just know I, I wouldn't be possible without you as well. So just thank you. And I'm just so grateful for your presence in my life. Thank you. 1619 Projects available wherever books are sold. I think it should be on every American's shelf. Well, everybody in the world, but let's just start with America. How about that? <laughs> That'd be good. That'd be good. Be good. All right. Loved it. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. 
Thank you for listening. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.